turn, if you will, to our text this morning, which comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Hear with me the reading of God's Word. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Now, I'm not sure how familiar any of you are with what's called adoptionist Christology. Adoptionist Christology. And what adoptionist Christology essentially says is that Christ came through the line of David simply as a man. And through his life, God resurrected him and exalted him to a a divine status. He gave to him a divine sonship for what he did. And so what this means then, by implication, is that Christ then is not the eternal Son of God, but rather his sonship was something that was bestowed upon him by the Lord for what he accomplished. And one of those texts that the adoptionists would turn to is our very text this morning in verse 9. They would read verse 9 and say, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. And they would read this and say, See, there was something here that was given to him that was not his by nature. Now these adoptionists were more prominent in the 2nd and 3rd century, but you would still find them today, especially within liberal scholarship. Uh, Even conservative scholars may even say that when looking at a text like Philippians 2.9, that they would see some sense of adoptionism in this text. You see, but the problem with such a view of Christ is many, but one is that In looking at verse 9 for this justification, what it does is it it rips it from its very context. It isolates verse 9 from Paul's entire argument, as we have seen thus far. As Paul has already said in verse 5, that he was in the form of God. He was God. He is God. And then in verse 7, he took the form of a servant. He came in the likeness of man. Paul has already described for us the God-man. And so what adoptionism does is It strips Christ of his divinity and denies it is essential to who he is. And thus it makes him less than the God-man. It makes him merely a servant who upon a good life was given divine status. But what this also does then in denying that Christ is the God-man is that it destroys the gospel. Because the work of redemption, brothers and sisters, could not occur by anyone who was less than fully God and fully man. He must be man because it was man who transgressed the law of God. Yet he must be God in order that he might overcome sin, death, and the devil. He had to be man in order to suffer and to die purchasing our salvation, but He must be God in order to apply that salvation to you and I. And so we see 
that Christ had to be the God-man or He could be no Redeemer at all. And so any ideology, any theology that makes Christ merely human turns the Christian faith into nothing more than moralism or into another option of self-help. If Jesus, a human being just like you and I, lived a good life and upon it was resurrected and exalted, then the moral of the story today is be good like Jesus and you will be resurrected and exalted. But we know that this is not the case. This is not what Paul has been teaching. Paul so far in verses 5-8 through has taught that Christ has come down, the pre-existent Christ, taken the form of a servant, And we have learned last week of His humiliation, of that passive and active obedience, that suffering over the entirety of His life unto death, of His perfect righteousness, perfectly fulfilling the law. And this week now we will hear that Paul described the exaltation of Christ in verses 9-11. through As verse 9-11 through deal with Christ's resurrection, His ascension, and his sitting at the right hand of God. This is, this is what encompasses the exaltation. The humiliation is the incarnation up to the resurrection. Exaltation is resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand of God. And so if you think about it, if you take what we learned last week of Christ's humiliation, and you take what we have said is his exaltation, what is it that we get? What is it that we get when we combine the two? You get the gospel. You get the gospel. The humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ is the gospel. Verses 5 through 11 tell us about God the Son who took on human nature, who was born of the Virgin, who submitted Himself unto the Father, who lived a perfect life, who suffered, who died, who was buried, and now who was raised and sits at the right hand of God. Paul presents to us the gospel. That is what Paul has presented here to us. And so any view that posits a view like adoptionism for our text, if it is true, makes Christianity then false. It makes Christianity false. But thankfully, throughout history, this view of adoptionism has been rejected and been deemed heresy by the Orthodox as adoptionism or any alternative view that seeks to alter the personal work of Christ, does so in in an attempt to understand for themselves, to rationalize for themselves, this hypostatic union, this joining of the divine and the human nature. You see, but what we have seen thus far, and what we will continue to see today, is that you can't. For Christianity is unique. And it is unique because it is true. And it is true because it is not something created by man like all other religions. And it is unique because it says that the only way to eternal glory is one way. There is one path, one road. It is narrow and it is Christ alone. The God-man. And it is for that name which at the consummation of all things every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And so today, what we are going to look at is the second half of this gospel equation. 
the exaltation of Christ. And we will look at it under three headings. The first is exaltation through humiliation. The second is evidence Jesus is God. And the third is application for you and I. So exaltation, evidence, application. So then what is it to say that Christ was exalted through His humiliation? It means that He accomplished all that He was set forth to do. If you recall in Luke 24, as we had the two travelers walking down the road to Emmaus, between themselves they're discussing the events that occurred and Jesus appears and He comes up to them and He says, what is it that, you've, that you're speaking of? And they said, well, we're talking about what happened to Jesus. The events and His death. And they look at Him kind of crazy. You're the only one who hasn't heard of it? And Jesus says to them, in verse 25 and 26, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? You see, the exaltation of Christ could not occur until He suffered these things. This is what He says to the two travelers. Suffering what things though? Well, the, if you read later in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 24 and verse 20, they will say that the, the things that He suffered was being delivered up to the, to the chief priests and rulers and to be, uh, to be condemned to death and to be crucified. And so his suffering, in part, consisted of his uh, arrest. If you read through the Gospel accounts, as Jesus was arrested, he was taken, he was held captive, he was uh, put a blindfold on, and as this occurred, they mocked him, and they slapped him, and they said, prophesy, tell us who it is that hit you. Also, his suffering consisted of being accused of something for which he did not do, of carrying the cross, of being put to death of being buried in the grave. You see, Christ could now be exalted because His humiliation was over. We read it uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 30. What is the last thing that Jesus says as He hung on the cross? It is finished. The Son had completed, had done, had finished all the work that the Father had willed for Him to do. It was done. And so we see here, Paul again demonstrates to the saints through the life of Christ, glory through suffering. This is what it means when I say exaltation through humiliation. Glory through suffering. Paul has said this quite often in, this, uh, uh, in his letter to the Philippians as we have already seen. For Paul himself, he has experienced this himself. He is at the point of suffering right now. He is in prison for the sake of Christ and could be put to death. Yet what is Paul looking forward to, he says? He desires to depart and be with glory, be with the Lord. He's looking forward to that eternal glory. And what is it that Paul has been telling the saints in our letter? He's saying not only was it granted for you to believe, but also to suffer for His sake. He's preparing them. He's saying that there must be suffering before glory. If you are experiencing the same conflict I am, you must prepare yourself for this. 
You see, if we don't understand that glory only comes through suffering, at the first sign of trouble, we're going to leave. We're going to walk away. If we come to the Christian faith only seeking glory, we miss the gospel. This is perhaps why so many so-called Christians walk away from the Christian faith at the first sign of trouble. They, because they come for happiness. They come that their problems would be solved. But is that what Paul promises people? No, in fact, he didn't say your promises will be solved. In fact, he says your promises will multiply. Your promises, your sufferings will multiply. Your sufferings will multiply. They will not go away. They will multiply now that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. There are many preachers today who only teach glory because they think that's a way in which to attract uh, followers to amass numbers. They teach glory. And these people seek after this glory. That's why they go to preachers who preach glory. But those who seek glory now will only receive glory now. They will have no expectation for future glory. Yet even that glory that you and I receive, it's far different. It's for a far different reason than the reason that Jesus Christ receives that glory. First, Jesus returns to a glory that was already His own. A veiled glory on earth, but one in which He was always in possession of. And the reason that He returns to this glory, that it is unveiled and manifested, is because of His work. As we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the author says, But we see Him for a little while. He was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. See, Christ earned it. It is for a far different reason that we receive glory. You and I have been saved by grace through faith, not of our works. We are saved because of works, just not our own, the works of Christ, what He accomplished on our behalf. And so because of this, He is exalted above all others, Paul says, and has bestowed on Him a name that is above every name. Now this name isn't something that was given to Him that was not already His own. But now it is more clearly seen and recognizable. He returns to an honor, a glory, authority that he always possessed, but was hidden from the world, yet now made manifest. You see, this name given to him isn't just five little letters. The name given to him isn't just J-E-S-U-S. It's not just Jesus. It's not there's one particular name. But the name that has been given to him is that dignity, that honor, that glory restored to him in his exaltation. And all that was his, according to his divine nature, is now made manifest. And according to his human nature, he receives all the perfections that a created being can have. Yet his divine nature received nothing. But in whatever case, Jesus, both in human and divine nature, in that one person is above all as he is exalted now in heaven. That is what Paul is saying. He is given a name above all other names. For example, let me give you uh, what Baptist John Gill said 
in regards to this name of Christ being above all other names. This is what he says of that. Was a priest a name of honor and dignity among the Jews? Christ is not only a priest and a high priest, but a great high priest. A priest not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek and a greater than he himself. Is a king a great name? Christ has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is a deliverer of a nation a great title? Christ is exalted to be a prince and a savior over men of all nations. Nor is there any other name but his that is given among men by which we are saved. Is a mediator between warring princes and kingdoms accounted a great glory? Christ is the only mediator between God and man and of a new and better covenant. See, he goes on to name ways in which Christ is greater than all. But we get the picture. What this means, what Paul's saying is that Christ in every and all ways is above everyone and everything. Each one of you here can sit and think of the greatest thing in your mind that you can conceive and Christ is above it all. He's greater than it all. That's what Paul is saying. And so, why does Paul tell all this to the saints in the context of our passage? Why is he saying this to them? Because he wishes that we would see the principle that was given to us was likewise exercised in the life of Christ our Savior. We are the type of people who say, do as I say, not as I do. Or even if we don't say it, we demonstrate that to others in our life. That's because we're sinners. Because we're hypocrites. But Jesus only acts in accordance to who He is. And so He can only be holy and righteous and good. And so what does Jesus say in the end of the parable of the tax collector and Pharisee? Luke chapter 18, verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, Paul is saying to us, look, Christ humbled himself. He's asking this of you, but he himself has done it. He has taken on the form of this lowly servant. He has suffered. He has put your interest above his own. He has saw himself nothing. He did not come and suffer and die for himself, but for you. He is kind of you more significant than himself. Now you follow after the pattern of your Savior. And you see it is because Christ was made like you and I in every way that he is able to help us. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way like you and I, yet found to be perfect. And so Paul's saying, if glory is all you're looking for, you will not find it. That upward call, that prize that Paul calls it in chapter 3, only comes through pain, it comes through suffering, it comes through self-denial, it comes through cross-bearing. Only then will that prize be sweet. Think of anything that we get that comes easy. Think of the, the present you receive for your birthday. The one that you just, just takes one tear and it's opened. That one is far less desirable than the one which you've got to work to 
and you, you can't wait to get to see what's inside. There's satisfaction in that when you get to it. There's satisfaction in that. If the Christian life was one of ease and comfort, what need would you see of heaven? If you had everything earthly that you wanted, you, you say to yourself, my life's happy, it's good. What do I need heaven for? What is it going to provide me? You see, but if you are poor, if you are those who suffer, if you are those who deal, deal daily with pain, if you deal with loss, if you are daily struggling with the effects of sin, heaven is something to look forward to for you and I. Heaven is something to look forward to. We long to be taken away from all these struggles. We long for heaven where the effects of sin over us are cast off. For those people, heaven is sweet because we see the need for it. We see its need. This is why we have suffering. We are being pruned. We are being made ready. We are being made to see the necessity and the need for heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, I say this to you. Next time, think of the joy of heaven when you are experiencing suffering or affliction. Next time you you come into contact with persecution, with suffering, with affliction, with illness, think to yourself about the joy of heaven. What greater sense of comfort and satisfaction is it to the Christian when we are enduring hardship? To think this isn't all that there is. There's something far greater waiting for us. This earthly life we live is just the beginning. You may live 40, 60, 80, 100 years. But that pales in comparison to the life of glory, that eternal life that awaits us. This is why Paul can say, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul understood this. And so, brothers and sisters, let our hardship, let our suffering humble us. Let God work humility in us through it. For this glory that awaits us only awaits the humble, not the proud. Those who rightly esteem themselves in light of Christ. Those who Paul is described as saints in Christ who do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but rather count others more significant than themselves, just as Christ our Savior did. Now what Paul also describes in our text this morning is not only a Jesus who has been exalted through humiliation, but also a Jesus who is God. You can look here in beginning our second point in verses 10 and 11, where Paul continues... So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Here we have that third aspect, we have that third part of Christ's exaltation, the sitting at the right hand of God. Remember the first two, resurrection and ascension. The third part of his exaltation is sitting at the right hand of God. Now the first two, Resurrection and ascension are similar to ours. We will experience this. 
But the last aspect is not. This belongs to Christ alone. If you recall in uh, Psalm 110, verse 1, David says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here in our text, in the exaltation of Jesus Christ, we see the fulfillment of this passage. Christ now is sitting at the right hand of God. And what does that mean? It means that He now rules as King over all the world, over all the earth, over the entire world. He has all power and authority to judge the nations. Yet what else does this mean? What else is Paul saying? Well, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, the Lord says to all peoples, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth and has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Wait. Here we have the one who says, I am God and there is no other, who says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before me, but yet we have Paul applying this to Jesus Christ. How can that be? It is because Jesus is God. This is what he's been saying the whole time. And so if verse 5 didn't do it for you, that he was in the form of God, now we have further evidence to buffer our case. In addition, we must ask ourselves, what is it to bow the knee? To bow the knee is to worship. It is to offer worship. And who is it that we are to offer worship to? But God alone. But God alone. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, as Elijah has ran and hidden himself into a cave, the Lord appears to him and he tells him many things. Yet one of the last things he tells him as he sends him back to his land is this. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. See, the Israelites were not to bow down to an idol, to a false god. This is what it means to bow the knee. It means to worship. And so how can we be called to bow the knee before Jesus unless he is God? For even the angels resist men bowing before them. These spiritual beings. Remember in Revelation chapter 22, when John throws himself before the angels to worship them, and what do they say? Stand up, get up. I'm a servant just like you. Worship God, not me. And so we see that Paul says that every knee will bow and Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They will confess Him to be the Son of God. The One who rules. The King. The Sovereign One over all things. And those knees, He says, come from all who are in heaven, all who are on earth, and all who are under the earth. You see, brothers and sisters, every knee, whether willingly or unwillingly, will bow the knee to the king. All the elect, all the reprobate, will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. They will acknowledge that He is the Son of God, clothed in majesty and splendor and honor, and they will all subject themselves to His Lordship, whether joyfully or by constraint. 
This is the picture we see in Revelation chapter 5. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5, please. Where we will see this picture given to us by John. Let us start at verse 6. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You see, at the consummation of all things, this exalted Christ will be worshipped alongside the Father by every creature everywhere. And so the question, brothers and sisters, for you and I, is do we willingly bow the knee and confess Jesus Christ? Because all will be made to bow the knee one way or another. And yet, what greater demonstration of humility is it to recognize who the Lord is, to willingly bow the knee and subject yourselves to your King? For the proud will be made to bow the knee, but the humble will bow it out of love and gratitude. And so, will you bow the knee as a believer? Or will you do it as an unbeliever? One who has been overcome and made to bow the knee by the conquering king. This is the question set forth before us. This is the choice set before you. When Christ preached this very same Christ in Acts chapter 2 verse 32, He says of Christ the exalted one, He, He sits at the right hand of God and he's saying this to the Jews who are surrounding him. And you know what their response was? Upon hearing it, as he says to them, you are the ones who crucified this exalted Christ. And their response was, what shall we do? What shall we do? You see, there has come a time in every believer's life 
upon hearing of the humiliation and of the exaltation, the content of the gospel, which Paul proclaims here in verses 5 through 11, that we have heard this and we have been faced with the question, what shall we do? We have had to ask ourselves that very same question. And you can choose to reject it, as much of this world does, or you can do as Peter instructed the Jews who asked this question, as he says to them in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the question remains thus for you and I. How does this, all of this that we have learned, all that Paul has told us, how does this apply now to you and I? Well, first it means we must make ourselves familiar with all that has been revealed to us of Christ's death and resurrection. That we might rightly understand what Christ accomplished. That we might rightly understand what it means for you and I. That we might receive what it is that we would receive from His death and resurrection. Because upon understanding these things, as we grow in depth of knowledge of what He has done, what it leads to is humility. When you understand that someone did something for you that you could not otherwise do for yourself, how can that not but cultivate humility in your life? It is because of His death and resurrection that we are redeemed. It is because of His death and resurrection that those benefits are applied to you and I. And so this is why we cannot allow others within the church, those who would name themselves among Christians, to dismiss or, dis- or diminish any aspect of His death and resurrection. This is why Paul tells us to strive side by side together for the gospel. And you know what? He has given us Christ as our mediator to bless us with every possible spiritual blessing we need in order to achieve this together. If that's patience you need, ask for patience. If it's strength to overcome temptation that you need, ask for that. For in His death and His resurrection, this is what He has secured for you and for you and I. And as the mediator, He sits at the right hand of God, living to make intercession for you and I. Also, then what we should learn from our text today is that we are to worship God alone. We do not come here together and gather to worship just the Son or to worship just the Father. No, we have come to worship the triune God. Our worship service is a Trinitarian worship service. And so we must understand who this one God in three persons is in order that we might rightly come together and worship Him. In addition... We must learn more and more how it is that Christ humbled Himself in order that we might apply that same pattern to our life. The Son was in complete and total glory with the Father from all of eternity, which is why He could say in His high priestly prayer, Father, glorify Me with that glory that I had with You before the world existed. You and I will never, nor nor can we ever, understand such humility. For no one came from such a lofty place to such a low one. Yet, Paul gave us this as an example. As Christ was completely 
holy and righteous and good. And so what that means for us is that we are to seek out these things. We are to be seeking out holiness in our lives. Also, as the exalted Christ, He is now King over all of the world. But in particular, Christ is King over the church. His spiritual kingdom. And as King, as ruler of this spiritual body, He demands from His loyal subjects that we would submit ourselves to His will. And He has given this to us in His law, in His word, and by His example, that we would conform our lives to it. And so just as you and I would submit ourselves to an earthly king or ruler, how much so more are we to do so for our heavenly king and ruler? One who is not a tyrant, but one who is motivated by love. Our king loves his subjects. He treats us kindly. He looks after us. He supplies us with everything that we need and more, both physically as well as spiritually. And what ought to be our response? Our response is to love him in return. To love him in return. Our response is to humbly bow the knee to the King, to proudly confess the name of our Lord. It means that we love one another, that we put the interest of one another over and above ourselves, just as Christ our Savior does, just as He displayed in His death and resurrection. And so as we have seen, brothers and sisters, as we draw to a close, over these last few weeks, what humility is, as asked for by the Apostle Paul, is counting yourself lowly. It's esteeming others more highly. Yet also it means looking after the pattern set forth by us in Christ, in His humiliation and in His exaltation. In it we have the perfect example of humility. Yet this text also supplies us with the reminder of the Gospel. What it all encompasses. You see, this world tells us that there are many avenues, many options, and Christianity is just one of many. But I ask, who else is it that died for you so that you may live? Who else by his own power rose from the dead so that at the second resurrection you too might rise? No other but Christ. No other but Christ. This world has its life in Adam which means death. If we, brothers and sisters, have been granted faith, our life is now found in the second Adam, who is Christ, who is the first fruits of the dead. And so now we who are in Christ will rise, imperishable, in glory, in power, and in the spiritual body. For Christ, in His humiliation, died for us. And in now his exaltation, as a result of his humiliation, which was once veiled, now manifests his glory to all for the glory of God and for the sake of the saints. So please bow your heads with me. Lord, we come before you as our heavenly king and as our ruler. Father, we thank you that You have set Christ upon the throne that He sits at Your right hand.
that we have a king and a ruler who rules us with love, who is motivated by love, love of the saints. And so, Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with such a great king, yet also with such a great uh, prophet and such uh, a great priest, one who lives to make intercession for us daily. We thank you, Christ, that you continually display to the Father that atoning sacrifice for our sins, that the Lord would look at us and see only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We pray that through the example that we have given, that we have seen by that Paul has provided for us in the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, that it would cause us to humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself. That it would stir this body of believers to greater unity and peace and love because we would look at one another and esteem one another in a much higher place than we esteem even ourselves. And so, Father, we ask that you would apply these words in which we have heard this day to our own life, that we would be those who rightly come before you and worship you, that we don't just focus on coming and worshiping Christ, but we come and we focus worshiping the, the, the triune God, the one God consisting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even in our prayers, that we would pray in a Trinitarian way to the Father in the name of the Son and by the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, you, we pray you would stir us to greater, greater recognition that we would uh, worship you mindfully, that we would think before we do and say and act, and we would ask ourselves, does what we are doing, does what we are saying glorify God? Does it rightly present him before the world as the glorious king and ruler of all? And so, Father, we pray that you would apply this to our life this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Apostle Paul who have provided this for us. We thank you for the means in which you have given us to gather to hear your word. And so, Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.